Tonight we're going to continue our series on the Psalms of Ascents. They have been affectionately dubbed by those who have preached before me as the road trip soundtrack of the Israelites as they traveled to Jerusalem and especially as they ascended Mount Zion for the great religious feasts. There are 15 of these Psalms of Ascents starting with 120 and tonight we are going to look at Psalm 126. So I'd invite you to open your Bibles right now to Psalm 26. We're going to look at it in two parts. We'll look at the first stanza of three verses and then we'll look at the second stanza. Before I read, let's pray together. The great Augustine prayed once, Lord, thou didst strike my heart with your word, and I loved thee. Lord, that's what we need tonight. We don't just need a good exposition of a psalm. We don't just need to spend time together. We need you to strike our hearts with your word so that we love you. So to that end, Lord, would you open our eyes, open our ears to hear joy and gladness? Would you teach us the fear of the Lord? Would you satisfy us with your great, inexhaustible love? And would you lead us in paths of righteousness, all for your name's sake and for your glory? And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's take a look at the first three verses, and I'll make some comments, and then we'll look at the second three verses. Psalm 126, a song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. More than any other psalm of ascent, Psalm 126 points directly to Israel's return from 70 years in captivity in Babylon. And this happened quite suddenly when King Cyrus of Persia, in fulfillment of Jeremiah's prophecy, made a proclamation that he had received a word from the God of Israel, from Yahweh, that he wanted Cyrus to rebuild his temple in Jerusalem. And that's an amazing thing, that God spoke to a pagan king and told him to rebuild his temple. And Cyrus was good with that. And so he, he quickly released all the Jewish people to return to their homeland to rebuild the temple. And suddenly, their 70 years of captivity was over. And this sudden reversal of fortunes was celebrated in this first stanza, these three verses, with a delirious, dreamlike, intoxicating joy. Not only did Israel proclaim, the Lord has done great things for us, even the surrounding nations said, the Lord has done great things for them. This was unexpected, crazy good news and outrageous good fortune. Now, frankly, it's probably a bit difficult for us to fully enter in to this delirious joy. And the reason is that most of us have never spent decades of dreary captivity in a foreign land. But even closer to home, I think our highs and lows in our culture 
tend to not be as intense as those of God's people in the Bible. I wonder why that is. Probably many reasons. Maybe we just have more distractions, things to distract us from God and captivity and deliverance and so on. Maybe our relationship, we just don't take it as seriously as people in the Bible did. I don't know. But even though we can't probably fully understand this joy in being released from captivity, I think we get glimpses of this dreamlike joy in various human experiences, like falling in love, maybe the wedding day or the honeymoon. It's not unusual for people in that situation to say, I can't believe it, it's just like a dream. That sounds just like what they said, we were like those who dreamed. Or maybe for you, it was two years ago, 2015, when MSU recovered a botched punt against another Michigan university in the last 10 seconds, ran it back 38 yards, and oh, our mouths were filled with laughter that night. Maybe for you, it's recovering <clears throat> from a serious illness or accident, or maybe a dramatic conversion or just a powerful time with the Lord when he delivers you from sin or suffering. And we just want to shout, the Lord has done great things for us. When I think of my early Christian experience, I go, I go back to the summer of 1974. It was my first summer as a camp counselor at Camp Geneva. And it was just the best summer of my life. We were <clears throat> college students uh, ministering to young kids all week. We had a great time doing that. And then on the weekends, kids would go home and we would just play. We would play water polo in the pool. We would go swimming in Lake Michigan. We would go to movies. We just laughed all the time. And it was, it was like every week was great and next week was going to be even better. So we get experiences that give us a taste of this joy, this restoration, this, this sense of full humanity. So this first stanza, even if we can't fully identify with it, is at least easy to understand. A sudden, gracious reversal of fortunes or circumstances makes us feel like we're dreaming, and it produces in us uh, laughter, joy, and gladness. And that's what makes the second stanza seem a bit incongruous. It, 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 it's not quite as easy to understand. So let's read verses 4, 5, and 6 right now. Restore our fortunes, O Lord like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Did you notice the contrast here? In the first stanza, it was when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion versus second stanza, restore our fortunes, O Lord. So which is it? Have the fortunes been restored or not. In the first stanza, our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongue with shouts of joy. The second stanza, those who sow in tears, he who goes out weeping. So how do we understand the relationship between these two sets of verses? One theory that some commentators hold is that the restoration from Babylon is still future. And the first stanza is simply a vision of hope. This is what they hope for. And then the second stanza is a prayer for God to actually grant that restoration 
so that they would be able to pray the first stanza as a reality. As Michael Wilcox puts it, they were praying, restore us so that we should be able to say, he has restored us. Now that's a kind of a clever interpretation. I just don't think that's really the right interpretation. I think it's much more likely that the first stanza refers to the real past tense cap deliverance from captivity to Babylon for which they were truly rejoicing at this sudden reversal of fortune. And the second stanza is then referring to a whole different set of circumstances and a need for a future and even a present restoration again because things have gotten painful and difficult. And I have two reasons for thinking that's a better interpretation. First of all, the book of Ezra gives us some very helpful historical background and details to help us understand this psalm. So if you'll turn in your Bibles right now to the book of Ezra, chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 10. And we're going to read through chapter 4, verse 6. So keep your finger in Psalm 126. But we're just going to get a little historical background that I think would help us understand Psalm 126. So in Ezra 3, verse 10, we read, And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestment came forward with trumpets and the Levites, the son of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsibly, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord, because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundations of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy, so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the joyful shout from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, for we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Ezarhaddon, the king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of the fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then all of the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. And in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. What do we see in this passage in Ezra? We see them truly rejoicing over their deliverance and their captivity and the laying of the foundation of the temple. This is an amazing thing, and they're praising God, and they're shouting for joy, just like it says in the psalm. But we also see some of the older people 
lamenting over the new temple because it did not compare in glory to Solomon's temple. We see the people struggling against deceitfulness and discouragement from enemies, against fear and frustrations and false accusations. So given that historical background, the two stanzas of the psalm make perfect sense. The first is the deliverance and the rebuilding, and then they're now in difficult circumstances again, and essentially they're praying for God to do it again. A second reason I think that's a better interpretation is I think this is really true to how life works. Life is full of agonies and ecstasies. And isn't it true they sometimes follow one another pretty quickly? The honeymoon is followed by coming home, going back to work, paying bills, navigating through illnesses and accidents, and later on raising kids and learning to work through conflicts, and then just getting older. 2000, our MSU's 2015 football season was followed by MSU's 2016 football season, not so hot. Lazarus is gloriously raised from the dead by the power of Jesus, only to have to die all over again. So when the Lord does a gracious work in our life, for which we often do and should give thanks, it often leads us into new challenges and new temptations. My wonderful summer of 1974 at Camp Geneva was followed by my summer of, uh, at Camp Geneva in 1975, same place, almost exactly the same people, but it was just a much harder summer for some reason. So I think this is, this is how life really works. So here's, here's the point. Remembering and praising God for past mercies is meant to kindle faith and inflame hope for future mercies. Or we could say it this way, thanking God for the good old days is meant to spur us on to seek him for better days ahead. And that's exactly what we see the Israelites doing here. So let's look again at the last three verses, verses 4, 5, and 6, and see how the psalmist uses the past to petition God for the future. And you'll notice that he refers to two different ways that God works. One is sudden and dramatic and quick, and one is more long and arduous. So first of all, in verse 4, we see the sudden and dramatic. We see the psalmist praying, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Now, we get the first line, right? Restore our fortunes. We need help again. <coughs> like streams in the Negev, maybe a little bit more obscure. It's kind of like when the, the writer of the Song of Solomon compares his lover's teeth to a flock of goats. You know, it, it just doesn't quite connect. So stream, what's the streams in the Negev? Well, the Negev is a large desert area in southern Israel. <coughs> Most of the time, it is hot and dry and barren and there are just empty stream beds. But when the winter rains come, sometimes they can come very quickly, and those dry stream beds fill up quickly, and it creates flash floods. So it's a picture of something sudden and dramatic. <coughs> and it's a good picture of what happened to the Israelites. They were suddenly released from Babylon. We might say something like, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like a winning lottery ticket or like an unexpected inheritance. And again, this is what happened to the Israelites. Once Cyrus heard from the Lord, things moved pretty quickly. 
So now the psalmist feels like, hey, we're in a desert experience again. Things are hard. Things are painful. Lord, we saw what you did when you released us from Babylon. Do it again. Do it again. Like streams in the Negev, suddenly, quickly, powerfully, save us. And that's so natural, isn't it? When things are really hard, don't you long for God to just step in and do something quick, something powerful, something that brings relief right away? It's not only instinctive to pray that way, it's perfectly fine to pray that way. That's how the psalmist prayed in verse 4. And Scripture tells us and shows us and gives us examples, many examples of God doing exactly that. There are promises of deliverance, there are prayers for deliverance, and there are many quick deliverances. Here's an example of a promise from Psalm 50. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. Sounds like one day service. Here's a prayer from Psalm 40. As for me, I am poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought for me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O oh my God. I'm sure you've prayed that way. And here's an example from the New Testament, from the Gospel of Mark. And a leper came to him, imploring him and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. Now just as an aside, the word immediately occurs over 40 times in the Gospel of Mark. In the Gospel of Mark, you just get the impression that Jesus is just pew, going here, there, and everywhere, and he's healing, and he's delivering, and he's walking on the water, and everything's just happening immediately. And then there's the Gospel of John. There's only seven miracles in the Gospel of John, and they're spread out, and they're, 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 they're filled in by long teaching times. And isn't it true sometimes we'd rather be in the Gospel of Mark than the Gospel of John? Lord, I don't feel like I want another long teaching time. Just immediately do something. Lord, can't I live in the gospel of Mark? So here's another point. We need to not be afraid to pray for God to work powerfully, to pray for miracles, especially when things are desperate. We Reformed types have a very good theology of suffering and a good theology of progressive sanctification. And I think we're often shy to pray for God to do anything too big, too quick, too sudden. Maybe it just seems too charismatic. Now, it's true that God has not promised to always act in a sudden and dramatic way. But he still can. And he still does, even with Reformed people. Now, there's nobody more reformed than Charles Spurgeon, who lived in the 1800s. And Charles Spurgeon, in his adult life, suffered terribly from at least two things. One was gout, and one was depression. And I think the story I'm going to tell you had to do with gout. It's an inflammation of joints. Uh, I've, I've experienced it for just brief, not very bad. But apparently, Spurgeon experienced excruciating gout, really painful. And one night, he was just in agony. And he prayed, Lord, if I had a child, 
that was suffering like this, I would do anything I could to quickly bring him relief. And Lord, you can do that. And immediately, he was paid for. So God can, and he still does at times, work powerfully, dramatically, and quickly. Now, verses 5 and 6 kind of segue a bit. Let me read those verses again. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Notice here, the psalmist moves from an urgent prayer for a quick deliverance in verse 4 to an almost proverb-like prediction in verses 5 and 6 about the way God often works to deliver us from distress. Again, he says, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He, goes, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Do you see how the imagery is changing from a sudden storm in the desert to the long, arduous process of farming the land? There just aren't any quick shortcuts in farming. So we see that sometimes God's work is sudden and dramatic, but often it is long and arduous. And, and often in times of trouble, when there isn't a quick deliverance, we not only pray, but we pray day after day, after week, after month, sometimes after year, sometimes even after decade. And as we pray and wait, if it's a really hard thing, we weep. We weep because we hurt. We weep because we wonder why God is taking so long. And, and it can be very grievous. But I think this psalm gives us a way of looking at those tears that is actually quite hopeful. I think the picture here is that the person is sowing prayer and actually watering those seeds of prayer with his tears. It's more hopeful to think that our tears are not just forgotten, they're not just random, but they're actually watering the seeds of the very prayers for deliverance and healing that we are praying. That's a hopeful picture. There can be long times of waiting when God seems uninvolved and uninterested, and that can be very hard. Frankly, we much prefer the streams in the desert. But notice, in verses 5 and 6, this long, hard process is promised the same success and joy as the quick, dramatic one. So again, Scripture comes to our aid here. Scripture not only gives us examples of sudden, quick deliverances, but it also gives us many examples of God working powerfully, but through a long, hard process, the process of sowing in tears and reaping with shouts of joy. Think about Abraham and Sarah waiting four, uh, 25 years for their son to be born. Think of Moses 
tending sheep in the desert for 40 years after he had tried to be Israel's savior. Think of David running from Saul after he had been anointed king for about a decade. Think of Joseph spending 13 years in an Egyptian prison after having these dreams that he was going to be a great ruler. Think of Jesus just being a citizen of Nazareth and working in the carpenter shop till he was 30. And then think about the Apostle John languishing on the Isle of Patmos in his old age. But remember, all these long, arduous, sowing in tears all ended with shouts of joy. They're, they all had happy endings. After 25 years, Abraham and Sarah had their boy. And you know what they named him? They named him Laughter. Moses is sent back in the power of God to deliver Israel from Egypt. Joseph gets out of prison to become the second most powerful person in the world. David becomes the greatest king in Israel's history. Jesus embarks on a three-year ministry that literally saves the world, and John was given the revelation which tells us how God's story ends. All of God's stories, brothers and sisters, end in joy. All of them, even yours. Every story that God writes ends in joy. Eugene Peterson, who you remember from the message paraphrase, said this, this psalm repeats the promises of a God who accompanies his wandering, weeping children until they arrive home exuberant, bringing in the sheaves. Now that leaves us with a question though, doesn't it? The question is, why doesn't God always work the way we want him to? Why can't we always be in the Gospel of Mark where everything is immediate? And of course, we don't know that. I don't know why God works in one person's life this way and in someone else's life a totally different way. In fact, he even does that in our own lives, doesn't he? At one point in our life, he might work quickly and dramatically and powerfully and we rejoice. And other times, it's this long, arduous sowing in tears and waiting to reap with joy. So we don't know the particulars. We don't know the specific reasons. But we do know that God does have reasons for waiting. And we know his reasons are good. If we had time, we could, we could go to James 1 or Romans 5 and see how James and Paul tell us that as we are sowing in tears and waiting for joy, God is developing endurance. He's imparting wisdom. He's transforming our character. He's preparing us for the greatest deliverance and joy of all, the heavenly glory of an eternal so let me close with three specific applications of Psalm 126. Here's the first one. Remember and rejoice in your past deliverances. God is saying to every one of us tonight, men, women, and children, don't forget to remember. Don't forget to remember. We need to often think back and remember answers to prayer, times when God healed, times when God delivered, times when God came through, whether in a quick uh, uh, scenario or a long one. And give thanks, praise, and rejoice in Him. And you children, 
if you can't think of any great deliverances or answers to prayer, ask your parents, and they will tell you. So number one, re remember and rejoice in your past deliverances. And then secondly, let those <coughs> past deliverances kindle faith and stir up hope for future deliverances. Go ahead <coughs> and pray for miracles. Pray until God answers or, like the Apostle Paul, until he tells you that he has a different plan. But here's the paradox. <coughs> here's the tension of the Christian life. While you're praying for miracles, at the same time, prepare yourself to sow in tears and expect to reap with shouts of joy. Remember that God is working hard in you while you wait. And your tears are actually part of the process. He may be preparing you for the blessing that you're waiting for. He may be preparing other people or the circumstances, but he is at work for your good. And the third point of application is this. Maybe this is the most important. Always look forward to the final and comprehensive restoration and deliverance in Jesus Christ. What we need <clears throat> is not just the temporary ones that we pray for. We need deliverance from all sin and suffering. We need the restoration of our full humanity. And we need the ever-increasing joy and satisfaction that can only be found in Christ himself, especially as we will see him and enjoy him forever in heaven. See, the blessings of God do not just come through Jesus Christ. They are in Jesus Christ. Paul says Christ is your wisdom. You don't just need wisdom from Christ. You need Christ to be your wisdom. He is your righteousness. He is your sanctification. He is your redemption and your great joy. So these blessings of deliverance and restoration are not just through him, but in him. Christ himself is the greatest blessing. Christ himself is the only thing that can fully satisfy you and liberate you. And he is the treasury of all of God's bounty. And remember, this bounty, these blessings were costly. It cost Jesus coming to earth in the incarnation and living the perfect life that you and I owed God that we could not and would not live. Jesus did that for you. And he suffered and he died the death that you and I deserve. So these blessings are costly. He lived and he died and he rose again to purchase them for us. Therefore, don't ever separate God's blessings from Christ himself. If we just think, oh, it's through Jesus, so I pray in the name of Jesus, and Father, this is what I really need, this is what I really want, I'm praying in the name of Jesus, we're making Christ a means to an end, and we're becoming idolaters. And don't mistake the temporary deliverances and restorations, which are good and that we should pray for, like redeemed relationships and redeemed health and redeemed children and so on. Don't mistake those for the consummate, final blessing of being with the Redeemer forever. Let me end with a quote. I, don't, I didn't write down who, who said this, but I'm pretty sure it's John Piper. It sounds like him. Because God is infinite, 
he can be infinitely enjoyed. Jesus Christ is not concerned about running out of ways to keep up with your ever-increasing ability to enjoy him. His character is endlessly deep, unsearchable, and inexhaustible. Imagine the scope of the entire universe. Trillions of shining stars burning brighter than our sun. Magnificent constellations. Billions of spinning galaxies. All magnificent and vast, colorful and mysterious. Yet, they are finite. Brilliant though they are, they fall utterly short in comparison to the breadth and length and height and depth of the love of Christ. His love, grace, kindness, wisdom, power, and mercy each stand as a never-ending infinite universe for all your affections to delight in. Let's pray. The Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. We were like those who dreamed. Father, each one of us can point to times in our life when you came through in a big way. And we thank you. And we praise you. And Lord, some of us tonight are, are, are right now in very difficult circumstances. So we thank you that you've given us not just by faith, but actually by sight, the knowledge of your power, that you can, you are willing, you love us, you answer prayer. Lord, help us to be patient. Like Paul said, we pray for your power to strengthen us for all endurance and patience with joy. Help us not to be afraid to pray big prayers, but help us to be patient. And Lord, help us to always expect that we'll, we will reap with shouts of joy. That one day, everlasting joy will be upon our heads and sorrow and sighing will flee away forever. Lord, we thank you that all this is possible because you are love, because your grace is free, because Christ came and lived and died for us, and because the Holy Spirit is powerful bring your grace into our lives. We pray all these things in the great name of Jesus. Amen.